good to be with you. I, um, <coughs> it's a short month um, that I'm spending with you this time and it was, um, it was a real joy to spend Mother's Day at home with, uh, with my wife uh, this year. Usually I'm preaching at Monty and um, it, was a, it was a blessing, it was good stuff. So um, thanks to whoever gave me that day off, it was, uh, it was a good idea. I want to talk about How Should We Then Live? How Should We Then Live is the title of a, of a book by a, um, a thinker in the 1970s, Francis Schaeffer. Uh, some of you are old enough to uh, remember Francis Schaeffer and his brilliant work. He was uh, one of the great Christian thinkers in the 70s and he wrote this book called uh, How Should We Then Live? And it later became a film series that was directed by his, uh, his son who was known as Frankie Schaeffer. And uh, the, the book and the film series had a strong impact on the church in the uh, latter part of the 1970s. The book's basically a review of, of Western civilization from a Christian perspective. Uh, it, it took us on a journey uh, across ancient Rome and through the Middle Ages, uh, the Renaissance, the Reformation, the Enlightenment and modern science, philosophy and arts all in one book. And this is what Schaefer would do. He'd have a look at the big picture of where is Western society, how's it going and how is it quite distinct from a Christian worldview. I uh, didn't get on to post-modernity. Um, uh, one of uh, uh, Schaeffer's protege, uh, Os Guinness, uh, took that on later on in, in other books, The Dust of Death and so forth, uh, and uh, was tackled in later writings. But Schaeffer dealt with uh, all of this stuff in Western society and basically came to the conclusion that Western society was in trouble and that the real question for us as Christians is, in the light of this history that he's going through, how should we then live? How should we then live? Well, I think the story uh, is, uh, is getting even worse, actually, when, as, as we go through uh, an understanding of Western history and post-modernity uh, and, and, uh, and all of what's happening around us. I, I don't think the picture is any better. And I, I think that Schaeffer's questions of how should we then live in the light of our culture and what's, what's going on around us is uh, just as important, if not more important today, um, as it was in the 1970s. How should we then live? Well, uh, Schaefer and others suggest that there are many alternatives. Uh, some people could deny that there's anything wrong. And so the denial, no, everything's okay, it'll, it'll all work out in the end. That's a pretty good, actually, a pretty, pretty good Australian attitude. Oh, it should be right, mate, you know, it should be right, it'll, it'll work out. Burying your head in the sand. Or we could move to the country and bury our heads in the dirt until something better comes along. Um, maybe that would be the way to do it. Or we could be separatists while still being involved in the world as necessary. Some people say, well, holiness is all about being removed from the world. You know, okay, we've still got to go in and work and do our banking and pay our taxes and so forth. But to be the holy people of God, we've really got to withdraw from the world and be separatists even though we might be uh, in involving ourselves in the things of the world. And that only creates a paradigm of dualism. It creates a paradigm of dualism because some things are sacred and some things are secular. And I've talked on that over the years um, that I've been visiting you in May. Uh, you know, that you divide things into that which is sacred, which uh, that, that's the good stuff, and then the secular stuff is the bad stuff or the stuff that we might have to do but it's not really sacred. And it divides God. <laughs> it divides God into that which is sacred and then whatever else is left in the secular and it's not really a good way to handle life. 
Uh, Schaefer states in this book uh, that the only viable alternative is to live by the Christian ethic, accept God's revelation as God's revelation, affirm the Bible's morals, values and meaning and live faithfully. That's what he suggests. In other words, while immersed in the world, immersed into Western civilization, uh, doing all the things that we've got to do, living faithfully as God's people. Now that doesn't take you by surprise, but it's very important to have it stated that that's really the way that we should be living. This is the calling of the church in the world. It sounds right, doesn't it? It sounds right. And in fact, you know, we tick that box and we'd say, yeah, that's what it's all about. But how does that really play out today? How does it really play out today? And that's really Schaefer's question. How should we then live? How should we then live? In the light of all of this and in the light of the affirmation that we are to be God's people in the world, immersed into the world, how do we live? How does that come about? That's the question that we confront every Monday when we go to work or go to school or or talk to the neighbours or whatever it might be. How should we then live? And that's what this series is all about. Today I want to give you some basic guidelines from Scripture uh, that I think are important. Next week we're going to seek to apply them to the problem of how the church is perceived in Australian society because I believe that before we begin to talk about what we're going to do about the world around us, we've got to have a good look at ourselves because we don't have a real good profile in the world today. I think we've got to deal with that. And so that's what we'll look at next week. And then in the third week, we'll look at some of the hot issues of the day and, uh, and, and what's a Christian response. How should we then live in the light of the hot issues, the things that are, are coming up around us? And so we'll apply these principles uh, to uh, our response to the world in which we live. So let's look at some basic biblical principles this morning. In reflecting on the many issues uh, in our daily newspapers that are of concern to us, uh, people have different responses. One Facebook entry recently in the light of all that's going on around us suggested that we should move move overseas and become missionaries. (laughs) Interesting motivation for becoming missionaries. Oh, it's so bad in Australia, we're going to move overseas and become missionaries. Uh, My response to that on Facebook was, no, 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 I think now more than ever we need to stay right here and be missionaries. Uh, We need to to make a difference uh, in the world in which we live and we need to look to the Bible for some guidance on how to do that. So I want to start with uh, with Psalm 121. Psalm 121 is one of the, the Psalms of Ascent. And the Psalms of Ascent were given and and, and the pilgrims who were marching to Jerusalem from wherever they might be in in Judea um, uh, or uh, or, um, other parts around wherever the Jews were and they were marching to Jerusalem and they would uh, sing these songs, the the Psalms of Ascent. And they were sort of like uh, Psalms to, to encourage the pilgrims as they were moving along and pilgrimage was really uh, a statement of seeking God, going to the holy city, going to Jerusalem in the light of everything that's going on. So we're, we're marching um, uh, in, in the knowledge of the world and the way that it's going, but we're marching to God. We're marching to God. We're, we've got this pilgrimage to God and they would sing these songs of ascent. And so they're highly relevant for us, all of the Psalms of Ascent are highly relevant for us as we try to grapple with what's going on here and as we um, turn our eyes, so, so to speak, uh, to, to the God of grace 
who, who wants us to live in a particular way. And Psalm 121 says this, I look up to the mountains. So as the pilgrims are marching to Jerusalem, there's the mountains around and they look up to the mountains. Does my strength come from the mountains? No, my strength comes from God who made heavens and earth and mountains. He won't let you stumble. This is from the message, by the way, so if you're having a hard time reading along in the NIV or whatever, that's the reason this is from the message. Uh, He won't let you stumble. Your guardian God won't fall asleep. Not on your life. Israel's guardian will never doze or sleep. God's your guardian, right at your side to protect you, shielding you from sunstroke, sheltering you from moonstroke. God guards you from every evil. He guards your very life. He guards you when you leave and when you return. He guards you now. He guards you always. That was a very important message to these pilgrims who are concerned about the way life is, who are concerned about the way things are around them. It might have been warfare that was bothering them. It might have been any number of things. They're concerned about the way the world's going. And the reminder to them right at the outset is God's your guardian. God's your protector. God, um, as David said, God's got your back. <laughs> you know, I've got this one. And that's what God is saying. That's what the psalmist is saying here in Psalm 121. But the important verse I want to concentrate on uh, in how should we then live is the uh, first two verses. I look up to the mountains Does my strength come from the mountains? No, my strength comes from God who made the mountains. Around the tops of the mountains in these days were all the shrines of all the different gods and and a lot of the pagan uh, sacrifices and ceremonies were done on the tops of mountains. And as uh, the pilgrim would look up to the tops of the mountains as they're walking along and going to Jerusalem, they would see evidence of all of these shrines. And the shrines were from a number of different gods. And people, if they were having a spot of bother, they'd look up and they'd choose the shrine and they'd pray to the shrine. It might be the god of this, that or the other thing. And they'd, they'd they'd pray to the shrine and my help is coming from the mountains. That was the, that was the common feeling. That my help is going to come from these things that are being worshipped and practised on the top of the mountains. And the psalmist says, no, your help doesn't come from the mountains. <laughs> doesn't come from getting into all that idolatry and all the sacrifices and, and praying to the God and the goddess of this, that and the other thing. It comes from God who actually made the mountains. <laughs> it's very important for us to realise that. Because different answers pop up all over the place. Uh, We look around in our world uh, at at Western civilisation, Australian culture, and we get concerned about it and we pick up the latest Christian book or we pick up a a Christian newspaper or sometimes a self-help book or whatever it might be and different ideas pop up. These are the answers for us. And sometimes they probably fall into the category of looking to the mountains. Will my help come from the mountains? And the psalmist is saying, no, it won't come from there. It actually comes from God. We've got to find out what God is saying in all of this stuff. That's what I want you to, uh, to dwell upon as we move through this. So how should we then live on the basis of these verses? By not relying on the resources that our secular world offers, but by relying on the maker of all of those resources, relying on God himself and being committed to obedience in the long run. That's the name of, uh, of the book that Eugene Peterson wrote on the Psalms of Ascent, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Excellent, excellent title. Excellent uh, uh, goal for the Christian life. A long obedience in the same direction. We're going to stick with this one. Long obedience, 
same direction. But is this just another way of burying our head in the sand? Long obedience in the same direction, pointing towards God, concentrating on what God is doing and saying and his resources. That could be used just as a way of denial, of denying the realities of the world. On this pilgrimage to the, to the uh, Jerusalem, to Mount Zion, and it could be just a way of denying that things are really not too good down here. Well, that's where we need to pay attention to some other passages to help fill this out. I want to turn to 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 12, verses 23, starting at verse 23. 1 Chronicles 12, uh, 23. Here are the statistics on the battle-seasoned warriors who came down from the north to David at Hebron to hand over Saul's kingdom in accord with God's word from Judah carrying shield and spear, 6,800 battle-ready. From Simeon, 7,100 stalwart fighters. From Levi, 4,600, which included Jehoiada, leader of the family of Aaron, bringing 3,700 men and young stalwart Zadok with 22 leaders from his family. From Benjamin, Saul's family, 3,000, most of whom had stuck it out with Saul until now. From Ephraim, 20,800 fierce fighters and famous in their hometowns. From the half-tribe of Manasseh, 18,000 elected to come and make David king. From Issachar, men who understood both the times and Israel's duties. 200 leaders with their families. From Zebulon, 50,000 well-equipped veteran warriors, unswervingly loyal. From Naphtali, 1,000 chiefs, leading 37,000 men heavily armed. From Dan, 28,600 battle-ready men. From Asher, 40,000 veterans, battle-ready, and from east of Jordan, men from Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, heavily armed, 120,000. What on earth does that have to do with what we're doing today? I hear you asking. This is a time in Israel's history when David was taking over uh, as uh, as king from the now-deceased Saul, and he needed some help. It was a time of political transition, It was a time of uh, change in the society around him. He needs all the help that he can get. And these verses talk of some of the help that was on offer to him and that he used. Uh, The characteristics of the help that is mentioned in this this passage included military ability. In fact, that was a whole lot of what the passage was about. But you would have picked up some other things. Uh, Faithfulness was mentioned and loyalty people who were faithful that's what David needed in this time of change uh, people who were loyal there was spiritual leadership mentioned in this paragraph uh, there were people who had civic responsibilities that were going to help David they were from the tribe of Manasseh there were people who were proven leaders amongst them these are the people notice it's, it's, it's people who are available Uh, who were there to help David in this time of transition, in this time of change. And they're loyal, they're faithful, they know what's going on. And then, of course, there's the people of Issachar. The people of Issachar who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. I find it interesting that in the midst of all of the the military power and the military uh, um, uh, uh, ability that was available to David, There's these men of Issachar who are there as key to what's going on. 
And these people of Issachar uh, understood the times. They understood the times. And they knew what Israel should do. They were people of wisdom. They were people, for some reason, these people of Issachar, it was a cultural thing I guess, spent time in trying to get into what was really going on and to understand the culture and the society around them and to see God's face in the midst of all of that and become people who knew what Israel should do. Now that's extremely important when David's got all this military prowess and all this um, uh, civic responsibility, people with civic responsibility and, and, and all these uh, uh, faithful and loyal people and they're all gathered around him. He needs some input <laughs> that understands the culture and understands what's going on and understands what all of these resources need to be doing for David in this time of political transition, in this time of change in the culture because David taking over from Saul was a really big deal. And that's where the the people of Issachar, who understood the times and knew what Israel should do, become so important. Well, as we look at a passage like this, the obvious question is, well, what are the equivalents for us uh, during this time of what I would call a cultural unrest and certainly increasing secularisation as we look out of the world around us? What, what are the cultural equivalents? Uh, maybe the military ability that's, that's mentioned here, maybe, maybe that's all the machinations of business and, and bureaucracy and, and media and education, all the things that are around us. Um, maybe these are the things that uh, uh, could make sure that our country actually flourishes, um, but they're part of the problem as, as I look out on our culture. Um, but there are Christians who are involved in each of those things. There are Christians who are involved in business and, and media and education and, 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 and bureaucracy. And these Christians can make a difference. And I believe that's a part of God's plan. Um, faithfulness and loyalty is mentioned and obviously that's a part of, of any um, addressing of culture. We need people who are faithful and loyal around us who, who, who are going to, to stick with it, the long obedience in the same direction. We're called, aren't we, as God's people to be faithful and loyal within our society, uh, to pay our taxes and to do all we can to support those who are now in leadership in politics and business and the drivers of society around us. <clears throat> and, we, and, and we're called to, to be those who call those leaders to be faithful uh, to the common good of our country, to make a difference. And then, of course, there's spiritual leadership. Spiritual leadership uh, coming from the church as we call for moral leadership and, and, and hold leaders accountable to that. There are Christians who have positions of civic responsibility and we need to be praying for them uh, to do their job well. These are all principles that to me come out of this passage here. That there are people who are out there and they're able to do something about the situation in which we find ourselves. And so the question of how should we then live has to bring in the resources that are there who would help some cultural change, who would help the morals and the values and, and the beliefs that we have to once again uh, be accepted as, as the guiding lights of our society and our culture. It's not just up to a group of people who meet at Montmorency on a Sunday morning, and I'm sure you're relieved to hear that. It's, it's, it's the faithful and the loyal who are scattered amongst all of the, the, the mighty powers of our society, the mighty powers of the society in David's age were all this military prowess, the mighty powers that we're talking about are business and media 
the mighty powers that we're talking about include education and bureaucracy all around us and we have faithful and loyal people scattered amongst all of those drivers of society and those faithful and loyal people faithful and loyal to God and God's ways are a part of the answer to how should we then live and then there are the people of Issachar in many ways we are all called to be those who understand the times and to know what needs to be done I really believe folks that we need to spend more time in prayerfully trying to understand what's going on around us um, I hope we have uh, I hope no, I don't really hope if there's anybody here who is uh, employed by or in any way associated with the Herald Sun uh, please forgive what I'm about to say but Herald Sun advocacy is a real problem to me and that is that you read a portion of something that's reported in the headlines of a news, of daily newspaper and you go off pop and you advocate on, on, on part of that without understanding what's really going on here and people who do advocacy based on popular media and a surface understanding of issues can do more harm than good. And I, I, probably in the third week I'll, I'll give a couple of examples of that. We need to be really careful of that. We need to be those who get behind the stories. And Facebook's even worse. Um, I, I don't know how much you're into Facebook. I'm into it pretty much because it really helps me to understand what's going on from different people around the place. And, uh, but some of the stuff is just atrocious and some, some of the things that people believe and like the other day I, I read one Facebook post that was put up as isn't this terrible what's going on we need to you know, really march against this and so forth and the newspaper article that was quoted was a parody it was, an, it was an article that was making fun of it it wasn't true at all and yet these people are marching behind this issue well that can do a whole lot of damage you do a whole lot of damage to the profile of the church if the church is, is, is into that level of, of advocacy. The answer to it is people who are committed to understanding what's really going on, to getting below the surface and understanding the times and then what Israel needs to do. In other words, what the church, what God's people need to do. This is what's really going on and how are we supposed to live? How should we then live? God, in some way or other, equipped the people of Issachar in particular to be the people who understood and to know what Israel should do. I, I pray that the church will become uh, those, those people, people who will understand really what's going on and to, uh, to know what needs to be done. So how should we then live? Well, through Christian character of faithfulness and, and loyalty, through whatever opportunities we have to empower and encourage those in leadership and to challenge where there is poor policy and poor action and to advocate for change. But by prayerfully studying our culture and seeking to understand it so we can properly apply the word of God and advocate for our nation to head in the direction of well-being, of shalom. The last one, uh, Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 to 11. I've 
Probably every year I mention this passage. It's one of my favourites. It's a passage about uh, Jeremiah's writing the letter to the exiles as they're in Babylon. He tells them what to do. It's a great example of how should we then live. Telling them now that you're in a situation that is really, really bad, culturally, it's really, really tough. And this is how you should live. This is how you should live. Jeremiah 29 starting in verse 4 this is the message from the God of the angel armies Israel's God to all the exiles have taken from Jerusalem to Babylon build houses and make yourselves at home (laughs) here's a situation where it's really really tough and you're God's people and you're in the midst of Babylon what do you do? settle down build some houses (laughs) bunch of tradies here that that suits with you. you that fits with you Settle down, build some houses, put in gardens, eat what grows in that country, marry and have children, encourage your children to marry and have children so so that you'll thrive in that country and not waste away. It's not the sort of message you'd expect from a prophet (laughs) uh, talking to people who are God's people who are buried in Babylon. But that's what he's saying. And he's declaring this message is from God. This is how God wants you to act. How should we then live? This is it. Make yourselves at home there and work for the country's welfare. Well, the country is Babylon that we're talking about. Doesn't make sense. Pray for Babylon's well-being. And the word is shalom, by the way, that's translated there. Hebrew word shalom. Applies to Jerusalem, but to Babylon? If things go well for Babylon... Things will go well for you. And he goes on and he talks about how God knows uh, what you're going through and God will be with you in all of this. But the message that, that Jeremiah has for these people who in, in many ways probably are asking the same questions that we're asking today about the way our culture is going and the stories that we hear from society around us. Asking questions of you know how should we then live? And Jeremiah says, well, you first of all, you settle down and become a part of the culture, become a part of the world around you, become a part of that society. You don't separate yourselves from it. You see, sanctification, being God's people, is not geographical, it's attitudinal. It's not withdrawing yourself geographically. It's immersing yourself into the world around you but thinking differently. The renewal of the mind, it's thinking differently. How should we then live? Well, it starts here. It doesn't start by marching out. It starts by staying in, becoming immersed, becoming involved and thinking differently. Daniel is a great example of how to live out what Jeremiah was proposing. So important. Settle in, get involved. Work for the welfare of the place. Work for the shalom of the place. Do all you can uh, to make it a really good place to live and then pray for it. Pray for its welfare because prayer is really important. And while you're doing this, be assured of God's commitment to you. So how should we then live? Folks, God is saying to us today that we should live as involved, responsible and prayerful citizens getting on with the job 
knowing that God has not abandoned us but is working for the fulfilment of his plans for Australia. I think this is where Schaefer's call fits in. Schaefer said the only hope for Western society is to live by the Christian ethic, accept God's revelation, affirm the Bible's morals, values and meaning. As we live in the world we are to be people who have an ethic of difference and we are to live according to God's revealed values. I'm going to unwrap that over the next two weeks. What does that mean for us as the church and what does it mean as we address some of the hot issues in our society? Sometimes this will involve affirmation while at other times it will mean we will challenge and refuse to fit in. But at all times it will be for the shalom of the society, of the nation that God loves so much that he sent his only son to die for us, Australia, that we might be his. So that to me is the bottom line of how we should live. But how on earth does that apply to the things that we have to grapple with on a daily basis, <clears throat> to the debates, uh, to, the, to the things that are going on around us? Well, as I said... I think it starts um, by looking inward because we have, as the church, an increasingly bad profile, generally speaking, in the world around us, to the world around us. And we've got to address that. We've got to address that. And then we can address what's going on around us and say, well, how do we as a community of faith, how do we live in the light of the issues, the hot issues, that we have to face every day and that our young people are even more so faced with these things as they're growing up in a culture that is increasingly saying there is no God and he, even if he is there he has nothing to do with daily life. That's secularisation. So the bottom line is found in these passages we've looked at today and then we'll apply them to ourselves and to the hot issues over the next two weeks and then I'll make a run for it.